But next week marks a noted anniversary in German life, 90 years since the Nazis took power in the Reichstag to begin their fateful rule. And it coincides with some spiralling political turbulence right now in Germany, in the words of one commentator, all centred on the supply of German tanks to Ukraine. Now, both Germany and the US have finally committed to send tanks to battle, the Russian army, uh, to battle the Russian army, 31 US Abrams tanks, 14 of the much-desired Leopard 2 tanks from stocks held by the German army. Berlin will join other European countries, including France and Italy, and I think today Spain is also committed, to create two tank battalions of the German-made Leopard 2s, making about 90 tanks in all, the kind of commitment Zelensky's been seeking since we two of the war. But there's absolutely nothing simple or straightforward about German decision-making around this, which has contributed to the delay. The country's unique history and culture is pitchforked into these acute current dilemmas. We'll find out more about the debates underway with Constance Stelzenmuller, She's director of the Centre on the United States and Europe at the Brookings, and she's an expert in German, European and transatlantic foreign and security policy. Uh, Now, Constance, if you could give us, please, some of the historical context as to why this decision to commit tanks to Ukraine was just so difficult for Germany and Olaf Schulz. Well, you know, it's complicated, as we like to say. Um, There are approximate issues and and then there are farther off issues. Shall I start with approximate ones and then we can delve into history? Sure. Okay. Right. I think for for your listeners, probably what is important to know is that Olaf Scholz, when he became Chancellor in December of 2021... Came so after, became Chancellor after a campaign that nobody expected him to win. His party, the Social Democrats, who are left of centre, had languished in three of Angela Merkel's four coalition governments, uh, were seen as a spent political force, were polling somewhere around, I don't know, you know, 14% uh, after having been a proud popular party that was polling above 40 for much of the Cold War. And not only did he, did he ha- was he not expected to win, he, he sort of squeaked by ahead of his conservative uh, opponent by one percentage point. And the Big reason for that was that his conservative opponent, who wanted to succeed Angela Merkel, was terrible. Um, he also had to form a government with, for the first time in Germany, with not one coalition partner but two. And so he's been managing a three-way coalition for the first time. He takes power in early December 2021, and on February 24, um, the Russians invade Ukraine. Right. Now, he and his partners thought that they would sort of overcome 16 years of Merkel-ruled stagnation at the end, very intergovernmental change. They promised transformation uh, on every level of the German economy, the German, German society, promised social justice and, you know, climate justice. And here they are with a classic geopolitical drama, disruption of a great power to their east invading a peaceful, sovereign country that is itself a neighbor to several NATO states, right? That was the thing that they didn't have on their on their bingo card. 
And it was what they were, I think, intellectually, politically, mentally, in some ways, unprepared for. And by that standard, I think one has to say they did a lot. All three of those coalition partners jumped across their shadow, as we say in Germany. The Social Democrats under Olaf Scholz have had this, you know, he gave a huge, uh, hugely important speech on, on February 27, mm-hmm. the Zeitenwender speech, I remember where he it. said there would be a historic turning point, exactly. So they have been giving Ukraine heavy weapons systems. We're the third largest supplier of heavy weapons in general. The Greens have had to accept for the energy decoupling from Russia a return to nuclear power and coal, a real, a really sort of hard shift for them. And the Liberals, of course, who are anti, anti-government debt have had to accept government staying in debt and taking on more debt. So in other words, what I'm trying to explain here is that Scholz is governing in a time of acute crisis and challenge, Mm -hmm. an unprecedented coalition um, with sort of very diverse takes on things that has had to make sacrifices to run the country in this time of crisis. And and so they're literally learning some of this on the go. Yes, well, I'm, I exactly want to get to that. Now, before we do, though, you said the the more distant um, uh, reason has all been so difficult, historical context? So there is the very obvious historical context of uh, Germany's guilt and responsibility for World War II and the Holocaust. That, for any educated German, um, looms over German debates about security about the use of military power and especially about a war with Russia. And, but on the other hand, there, there is also the fact that Ukraine is part of the so-called bloodland, so-called by the American historian Timothy Snyder, eastern Poland, much of Ukraine and Belarus, where the Nazis and the Soviet Union under Stalin perpetrated some of the most their, their most horrific killing sprees. Mm-hmm. Millions of, of Ukrainians, Belarusians and Poles died uh, on those territories. So, so Ukraine is in every possible way fraught territory for Germans to engage in. And I will also say you're, you're, you, you have a Russian regime under Vladimir Putin that has attacked a, a Ukraine that is governed by a Jewish president, um, Zelensky. Um, some of his cabinet members are, are Jewish, and, and they indulge in the most horrific anti-Semitic um, and essentialist and racist tropes every day in, in their own political speech, that of Putin and his cabinet members, and of Russian state-funded media. So if you want to, if you want to remind Germans of their history, mm. um, that would be the way to go. Yes. And then, so that's that part of history. And then there's the Cold War in which, and I'll finish on that, in which Germany's armed forces actually were not provided for in the constitution. We, uh, the West Germany, gave itself with allied help in 1949, the basic line, the, the, basic, uh, the basic law. It did not provide for armed forces. We had to stand those up six years later in 1955 when we were asked to join NATO because it became very clear that you were not going to defend against the Warsaw Pact without a German territorial army. And the Germans had to stand up 12 divisions, half a million men, only men at the time, in a very short order in order to to defend the border with East Germany and perhaps uh, somewhat somewhat beyond that, but but not, not, not far, against a presumed Warsaw Pact Soviet Union onslaught. 
Mm-hmm. And and that and so in other words, we had a territorial army. It was very heavy on armor, very heavy on infantry. And then in 1989-90, the war comes down. Germany is reunified. The Warsaw Pact dissolves. The, by 1991 in December, the Soviet Union dissolves. And shortly thereafter, on 9/11, September 11, 2001, the Taliban attack America. Um, and, and NATO reconstitutes itself as a, an alliance to fight global terrorism after a decade in which everybody thought they were now going to reap the, the, the peace dividend. The peace dividend. Uh, look, that is such a marvellous overview of um, the dilemmas, um, and it really is it's breathtaking. Well, let me, make, let me make, make one final point. What you're seeing here is this incredible whiplash from a territorial army that was uniquely and solely uh, designed for for the defense of a territorial border, um, unlike the other uh, major European armies, some of which had nuclear forces like the Brits and the French. Then you go to a decade of peacetime where everybody thinks, all right, it's all right to disarm now because everybody wants to be like us. Then you have NATO and Americans telling uh, the Europeans, now you have to reconstitute for expeditionary warfare against against terrorists. Right. And now the Russian threat is making us revert. Guess what? Full circle mm. to territorial defense and, and deterrence. And, and that is one of the reasons why the Germans have had such a hard time over the decades. They've had more whiplash than most. It, it would seem so. And from what <laughs> one reads, uh, the fault lines are very interesting uh, for sending in the tanks. Um, now, I wonder if you could sketch what you think they are to help us understand, please, these roiling debates right now, as I understand. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, the other thing to understand, I think, with the Social Democratic Party is that the it has a glorious tradition of the party uh, political group in the legislature and the, the national legislature taking down its own chancellors. That happened to Chancellor Helmut Schmidt in the early 80s over the NATO two-track decision to deploy um, medium-range um, missiles in Europe. Um, and it happened to Gerhard Schröder, famously a friend of Putin, um, over his decision to liberalize the, liberalize the labor markets, the so-called Agenda 2010. And so it is no doubt very much on Olaf Scholz's mind uh, that he has to be very wary of his parliamentary group, which, to cap it all off, is led by the left wing of the party. He belongs to the right wing of the party. He's a transatlanticist, despite a radical youth. But the left wing of the party is firmly anti, anti-weapons deliveries, wants to have peace with Russia, wants to have negotiations, and is, is really sort of stuck in, in, in the German national pacifist narrative mm. that I think that some of the younger term parliamentarians, party members and voters at this point are far away from. Well, the, the so, Greens so have completely a, turned, haven't they? That's the fascinating thing. Well, not completely, but, but mostly. The Greens are farther out there, as are the Liberals. And, mm. and the biggest forces of inertia, if you will, or, or of resistance, are, are an older generation of social democrats for whom the commitment to pacifism, to reconciliation and to atonement, um, and none of that is obviously a bad thing. Um, but was such a such a fixed idea, together with the um, the notion of Ostpolitik, which um, really meant balancing uh, Germany's commitment to NATO and the defense of the West with a detente with Russia and Eastern Europe, um, 
often, more often more Russia than with Eastern Europe, which somehow often got lost, uh, left out of the message. And so that that is the really Schultz's worst challenges really are in his own party. So and, and, and for them, heavy weapon systems are are you know a bad thing per se, and and we ought to be negotiating. And that's that. I heard a very good um, yeah. Maria Claudia Meyer, who's a, a Berlin yes, analyst, talking about, mm. talking about this great sense inside Germany still after ninety you know seventy years of, of uh, uh, reflection that mm. military con. Conduct generally doesn't solve things. Diplomacy does, and of course it did with mm. East Germany. But there's still an enormous, well, a tremendous um, debate within and individuals and collective about the role mm. of the military. Would you agree with that? I, I think that's certainly true. Then, then again, um, I mean, keep in mind that, that public opinion polls right now are split on this, right? So 50, 50% of the German electorate, if we can believe these polls, thinks otherwise. And I think that that is important to keep they, in mind. They're more in, inclined I, to, sit, to, to send tanks, is that what you mean? Yes, to send mm. tanks to support Ukraine. And I, I will also say, um, from my own anecdotal experience, I, I travel to Germany a lot regularly, um, and and I have not seen Germans, ordinary Germans, so outraged and so appalled at the depredations committed by the Russians in Ukraine. You know, that, that does make a lot of people very angry and and very willing to support Ukraine. The 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 I think the real fear that the Russians have tried to play on in Germany, and that is somewhat unique to Germany, is the fear of nuclear escalation. And that harks back to the Cold War configuration that I was just talking about. When I said we were uh, we were set up with our armed forces to defend the intra-German border between West and East Germany for three weeks, the assumption was that uh, at that point, nuclear war would set in and uh, it would take place on the territory of Germany, meaning that, you know, we would have... Hiroshima and Nagasaki several mm. times over and not, which not much would remain. And I think that that is something, I think the trauma of that assumption that post-West, post-war Germans lived under, I think is underrated in its impact on the German psyche a lot by, by even some of our, our most friendly allies. And I think it has a great deal to do also, it plays into Germans' fear of environmental degradation and right. an unlivable planet. Uh, Constance Stelzenmuller, what about relationship then with that key ally, um, the US? You said that Schultz is actually a, mm. a, a, a transatlanticist. So how does he, how would you say, yeah. see that unfolding? Right. So the point I want to make here, because I see sometimes, you know, the uh, debates on Twitter, not all of whom, uh, not all of which are, are constructive. There is a former German chancellor, whom I've already mentioned, Gerhard Schroeder, who was not just a friend of Putin, but an apologist for him. And well, he sits on one of know, his boards, um, doesn't he? He sits on. He sits. He sits on a, on on the board of of uh, Russian state-controlled companies. Absolutely, and so. That is, I think, he, he is somebody whom I think the great majority of social democrats now consider a national and personal embarrassment, right? So I don't think, I don't think this government is in any way in, in hock to Russia. I don't think they're Russophiles. I, I don't think that they are liable to, to succumb under blackmail. And I don't think they're corrupt. 
I think they do consider themselves as transatlanticist, and they're not, and they have understood. And in fact, the the Social Democrats have just published a a long paper in which they say our our clinging to the notion of Ostpolitik well beyond the point when it was becoming clear that the Russians were trying to weaponize our energy dependence against us and against the rest of Europe was a mistake and, and it is one that we have to correct. And that was the notion that trade would actually uh, lead to peace and uh, would open yeah. up... Yeah, this, yeah. This, this came out of this, this the famous thought, the 1989-90, the fall of the wall and, and the end of the Warsaw Pact, would be the end of history and and that globalization would lead to worldwide democratization and everybody would want to be like us, uh, a notion uh, fervently espoused, especially by the Germans, who thought that, that this meant that their path of atonement and reconciliation now sort of, sort of put them out first than, rather than in, in at last. But um, be that as it may, I think that the social democrats think of themselves as as good allies, and I and I think that the Americans are the Biden administration is sincere when they keep praising the Germans for it. I think what is uh, what tries their patience and that of other allies like Poland is just how long it takes the the government and the and its three component parties to deliberate this in public, the fights that they have, which often seem sort of schematic and rigid and seem to have more to, have more to do with domestic politics and tactics and the ins and outs of weapon systems rather than with, with strategy and the kind of strategic deliberation that you would expect from a major economic power like Germany. So where do you see this heading? Because obviously the domestic politics are going to go away. Um, people have called it dithering. Others have said vacillating, a much nastier word. Um, <laughs> do you think that the final decision about the leopard tanks might change the direction of the war? Uh, that's what people are wondering. Well, that's a, yeah, that's another question. And, and uh, I mean, since you mentioned dithering and vacillating, um, again, I, I, I'll, I'll make a I'll try and give you a, a charitable explanation and a not so charitable one, if I may. I think the charitable explanation, and it is one that I accept to some degree, is is that Schultz and and his team say, in a situation such as this, on an issue that divides the na- the nation in this way, and and leading such a volatile coalition, we have a responsibility to take everybody along. If we have to have this national discussion, so be it. Okay, that's exhausting for our allies, um, but but that's what we have to do. My answer would, would to that would be okay. I take that argument, but you know, you came to a an allied Ukraine support meeting in Ramstein last week, and it would have been quite nice for everybody else if you'd had that discussion beforehand, rather than arriving and saying no, we can't we can't decide this here, and we actually don't want to think about it now. That was, I think, not not helpful, as diplomats like to say. Um, and then there is the personal character of Olaf Scholz, who, who I think is not so much a ditherer as somebody who takes counsel in a very, very small circle of advisors and I think makes important decisions on his own and has a strong stubborn streak. And so when he finds himself backed into a corner, when he finds himself publicly criticized, that will, I think, uh, lead him to extend his personal deliberations rather than to shorten them. That is something I think everybody is now learning is is a characteristic of his of, of, of this transfer. Well, it'd be pretty tough decision making, you know, with the history yeah, behind absolutely. you and yeah, Zelensky yeah. pleading. I mean, what a what an extraordinary time. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You had asked me about whether the tanks will change the course of the war. Let me let me perhaps sort of contextualize this. There are two wars happening in Ukraine right now. One is a an air war um, fought with drones, with guided missiles, and with ballistic missiles. Um, all of them set off either from Russian airplanes or from Russian or Belarusian territory. The, the function of this aerial war, the b- bombardment of civilian infrastructure and civilian cities in Ukraine, um, with depredations such as we saw in the residential complex a few days ago in, in Dnipro, is to terrorize the Ukrainian population, to break their resilience, their resistance, and of course to do the same for the Ukrainian government and Western resilience and support. Right. So it's as much a cam- a willful and and mm. sadistic campaign of destruction from the air mm. as it is a a political. Uh, terrorist messaging strategy. At the same time, there is a land war in eastern Ukraine, um, pretty much along the borders of those four easternmost provinces claimed illegally by Moscow, and where the Russians are expending huge quantities of of human lives Mm. and of material for very small territorial gains, and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. It's becoming a war of attrition. And and the, there the question is between um, within the West, should we go on giving Ukraine just enough material so that it doesn't lose, but doesn't force or or, or, or motivate Russia to escalate, uh, including to escalate to the use of nuclear weapons, or should we conversely, in order to prevent an exhaustion of Ukrainian forces and Western consent, consent, should we conversely give them so many heavy weapon system so quickly that they can make one big push and push the Russians out of Mm. um, um, Ukraine's mainland territory. With, I think, the afterthought there being, if that happens, that would be such a severe humiliation for Putin that it would be hard to see how he survives in power. Mm. Yes, this is the crucial and solemn decision-making that is still to come before the, the spring by the look of it. Yes, look, precisely. I'm sure we'll come back to you. Thank you very much. That was a, a marvellous overview. Happy, happy if it helped um, clarify some things. And that's Constanza Steltzenmuller. She's director of the Centre on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. And if, you, if that sort of piques your interest, and I, I know it's challenging, but... Uh, gee, it's worth understanding. There's a very good piece in the New York Times too about how all of these tanks are going to get to the battlefield. That's another whole story. <laughs> it's, a, it's just amazing how you hide them. How do you hide a tank from the Russians? Uh, so all of that is still to come. Well, up next, a history of Radio Australia. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.